You tell yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. But sooner or later, it's time to go home. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Ron. And we are so excited to have on this special Shocktober episode Mike from the Dana Buckler Show, where he co-hosts the fantastic feature, The 20th Century Movie Club, where I've had the honor of being a guest a couple times. Mike, welcome to Filmstrip. Tell folks a little about yourself and The 20th Century Movie Club on The Dana Buckler Show. Sure. I'm glad to be here. I'm really excited to uh, join this uh, for this special podcast with you guys. Uh, so the Dana Buckler Show is a podcast where we talk about all different types of movies. Dana Buckler is a longtime podcaster, a friend of this program. And uh, I join him for a segment that we try and do uh, probably every couple of weeks or so is about what it works out called the 20th Century Movie Club, where we make recommendations of movies that had to have come out before the year 2000. And of late, we've been uh, having a little fun with doing themed episodes. I know, Jay, you just joined us for one where it was based on a true story, and every recommendation we made had to be based on a true story. So I think it's a, it's a fun podcast for me to do, and hopefully it's a lot of fun for people to listen to. So you can find it at you know the Dana Buckler Show, anywhere podcasts are heard. Absolutely. That is a blast to be on, and we'll talk more about that here here later. But for today's episode, we're reviewing Psycho, starring Vince Vaughn, Julianne Moore, Viggo Mortensen, William H. Macy, James Remar, James LaGrosse, Rita Wilson, Rance Howard, Philip Baker Hall, Robert Forrester, and Anne Hesch. Directed by Gus Van Zandt, released in 1998 on a $60 million budget, it grossed $37 million at the box office and was met with critical disdain, and that's putting it mildly. I, well, we're doing Psycho for Shocktober 19, but why this one and not the 1960s classic one, Jay, you ask? Well, you can thank Dana and Mike for this, because you guys brought up the 1960 classic on a recent episode of the 20th Century Movie Club, and you had a short discussion about the remake, and just got the wheel spinning in my head. I reached out to Ron. He was game. I reached out to you guys, and you kindly accepted, Mike. So I'll play my cards a little early here. I remember when this came out, went and saw it in theaters, and as far as I know, to this day, I'm the only person who doesn't outright hate it. I don't know that that's true. You know, when I was doing research for this, uh, one of my favorite film critics, Chris Evangelista from Slash Film, had a couple years ago done a uh, full deep dive slash reassessment of it. And, I, and his kind of position was, and I think it's something we'll probably talk about a bit, is that the movie doesn't work, but that doesn't make it an unredeemable piece of garbage. So I don't know that you're uh, as alone as you think you are, Jay, although you're certainly, I think, probably in the minority. I remember this one from probably HBO. HBO, when they got the rights to it, made kind of a big deal about it. And I remember like sitting down and watching it uh, once and finding it to be a... A strange and off-putting exercise, and that feeling has not changed <laughs> on this most recent watch. I got to ask, I mean, and the, the eternal question is, why would you ever do this? And Gus Van Zandt's given, like, tons of answers through the years, and the, the usual answer used to be, why not, you know? And now the one he seems to have settled in on, and I wanted to kind of throw to you guys to see what you thought about it, is that, well, when I did this, I was being offered everything left and right after Goodwill Hunting, and I... 
I, you know, my agent said, you got to get three studios involved because that'll drive the price up. So I had been talking to Universal and had already pitched them on the idea and they said no. But when we were in negotiations between other studios, I said, well, let me do the Psycho remake, but let me do it shot for shot and not really change anything. And then they greenlit it. And he looks at this as a huge experiment of could you actually do it? And he treats it like the way an artist would take a broken piece of art or sculpture and try to recreate it so that modern people could still see it. You're putting a little bit of you in there, but what you're trying to do is just recreate what the original intent was. Now, in one hand, I'm going, that's really nice and pretentious and not what happens on the screen. And on the other hand, I kind of get what he's saying. So what do you two say to that? One of the things that I, I saw a quote from Van Zant on this that I actually really liked and kind of do agree with is at one point he said he wanted to remake it because he knew it was going to get remade at some point. And so if somebody was going to do the sacrilege of remaking this movie, he wanted it to be him. He bet on himself rather than betting on, you know, some up and coming commercial director that's never made a movie before or, you know, he didn't want it to be even though the movie hadn't come out yet. He didn't want it to be the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Right. He was betting on himself that he could do something interesting with it. And I, I respect that uh, sort of reason for doing it. Um, you know, I saw this opening night in the theater and then I didn't see it probably again until I watched it this week um, and this will come up. I do want to point out that I did something absolutely ridiculous uh, this week to prep for this podcast, which is I rewatched the Van Zant psycho and the original psycho in sync as much as I could on my computer. I had them up in two different windows trying to sync them up as much as I could. And I went a little bit mad uh, because we all go a little mad sometimes, but this yeah. is you're guaranteed to go a little <laughs> mad if you're trying to do this. Um, so I, I feel like I've got a really good handle on how the two movies work. I just want to put it out there that I did not make you do that or request you to do that in case like you have to take sick leave from Dana's show that it's not my <laughs> no, fault. So. 100% voluntary. <laughs> on my part i did it and it, it's funny something i will talk about later is uh, i didn't realize steven soderbergh had already done it for me so if i'd known that i'd have just watched that but i'll tell i'll talk more about that down the road but think, um yeah i think what soderbergh does is like cut back and forth between the two of them in like in mid-scene sometimes and he black and white the gus van zant one to try to make it match and i mean soderbergh's the kind of guy that would do this sort of stuff because he gets bored and makes movies on iphones you know because yep. that's just what he does so I, why I, we love him yeah exactly I, you know, hearing gus van zant tell the story about you know, I wanted to do it before somebody else could do it. And I think he's directly referencing the company responsible for that Nightmare on Elm Street remake because they were responsible for so many of the other ones, the Platinum Dunes, Michael Bay horror remakes. If he didn't do it, somebody was going to, and it was probably going to be them at some point. And I think it's also this horse artistic hubris that he's got about, oh, I just wanted to see if I could, you know, do it. If I could be the, the curator, not necessarily the director of this. And it's real, I don't know, highfalutin. And it reminds me of listening to Joe Berlinger, who's a great documentary filmmaker, try to talk about the art he was making with Blair Witch 2. And if you've seen that movie, you know that there's absolutely no art in it at all. But if you listen to his commentary, it's absolutely fascinating to hear him try to describe the academic exercise of what he's trying to do there and then hear him say and then the studio told me i had to cut that and put in some blood because this movie was trying to get teenagers to watch it and not you know 40 year olds at home and um i you know the van zant will even cop to the fact that i know this bombed it didn't make money 
eh, you know, and then he just kind of walks away from it at this point. And obviously it didn't end his career or anything. And it didn't damage anybody that was in it, though I don't know that anybody walks up to Vince Vaughn and goes, hey, man, you were awesome in that Psycho remake. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine that's happening. I think this did hurt Vince Vaughn's career for a while. Not as much, say, as True Detective Season 2, but <laughs> he took a, he took a knock on this one. I mean, he, he lost a little bit of luster and retreated back into comedies, which is probably where he was best at I was going to say, I don't know that he's really great at anything else. I've seen him in one other dramatic role that I would call mildly entertaining, and that's The Cell. And I don't know if either of you have ever seen that. Oh, yeah. And I would actually say that he's better than he gets credit for. I, I thought, you know, this same year he did Clay Pigeons, and I thought he was good in that. And he's fantastic in uh, S. Craig Zoller's Dragged Across Concrete, which is a problematic movie, by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, Vaughn is incredibly good in it. So I do think he can do drama. Um, I just think it requires the right kind of role. And, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about, I don't think this one was it. Well, it, it is a, a big exercise to try and go back and redo anything at any time, but especially to take on a classic like this and try to give it something without taking away from what its essence. And did they accomplish that? That's what this next discussion is about. Ron, for people that may not know what the plot of Psycho is, please do lay out what happens in this version of Psycho. Sure thing, Jay. Have you seen the 1960 version of Psycho? Do you think that it had too much subtlety and you need 500% more sex noises and scenes of Vince Vaughn masturbating? If so, Gus Van Zandt has a movie for you. He takes an all-star cast of great actors, the script and template of one of the greatest horror movies of all time, and turns it into 1998's Psycho. Marion Crane is stuck at a dead-end job with a boyfriend who has too much debt to get married, which is a really convenient excuse. When a fat cat sleazebag Texan enters her boss's office to buy up property with $400,000 in cash, the temptation is too much for Marion to bear. She grabs the cash, tells her boss that she's got a headache, and heads for Sam's Northern California home. With a trunk full of ill-gotten gains, she's too tired to stop at a motel one night on her long drive and crashes by the roadside. A suspicious cop, who looks suspiciously like James Remar, notes her agitation and tails her to the next town where he catches Marion trading in her car for another car in something of a hurry. Marion takes off again, but a fierce rainstorm forces her to pull off the highway and stay the night at a neglected little motel called the Bates Motel. The motel is run by a creepy giant named Norman Bates, who maintains the motel and takes care of his ailing mother. <laughs> Marion decides against all odds to have supper with this weirdo. <laughs> they have an awkward meal. She hears him arguing with his mother over how much of a whore she is for eating the meal with a man. And Marion further sticks her foot in it by suggesting to Norman that he put his mother in a home. The two part ways somewhat tensely, only for Norman to watch Marion hop in the shower. After beating off, Norman leaves the office peepery and heads back upstairs. Marion's shower is interrupted when an old woman enters the bathroom, rips open the shower curtains, and stabs Marion to death in one of the most famous scenes of all time. Norman, who stumbles across the body a little bit later, is horrified and has to clean up the mess and puts Marion's body in the trunk of her car. He disposes of her by pushing her, along with the $400,000 that he has no clue about, into a nearby swamp. With missing money and a missing woman, it's only a matter of time before other people get involved. Milton Arbogast and Lila a private detective hired by Marion's boss and her sister, respectively, head to Northern California to interview Sam, because as we all know, the husband or boyfriend is always the killer. Except not in this case. Arbogast follows Marion's trail to the neglected Bates Motel 
and after a weird conversation with Norman, he updates Lila before sneaking in to talk to Mother. Mother's ready to talk, and by talk, I mean Mother's ready to stab Milton to death and send him falling down the stairs in a rear projection nightmare. <laughs> Norman, fearing reprisals, decides it's best to play things cool and hide Mother away for a while. Sam and Lila, who are now very suspicious about the fact that Arborgast seems to have fallen off the face of the earth, head to the last known whereabouts of both the detective and Marion, Bates Motel. The two pose as a married couple, with Sam given the task of running interference with Norman while Lila tracks down the mysterious mother. Sam, being something of a dumbass, angers Norman by suggesting that he'd stolen the money, and Norman, who is a sex pervert and murderer but not a thief, bashes him in the head with a golf club and takes off after Lila. Well, Norman doesn't bash him. Mother does that. Lila finds Mother's preserved corpse in the basement, but before she can do more than just shriek at her, Norman comes out of the shadows and attacks her. As the two are fighting, Sam shows up out of nowhere and helps subdue Norman, which makes a lot of sense because Norman is a freaking giant and he ought to be able to just throw Julianne Moore around like a ragdoll. Later, in police custody, a group of detectives sit around discussing the case when Dr. Richmond shows up and gives a full explanation for Norman's psychosis. He's not Norman anymore. He's mother full-time. And after Robert, Robert Forrester does his best with a clunky bit of exposition, we get a great voiceover of Norman in the voice of mother, establishing that she's just a helpless old woman who wouldn't even hurt a fly. Vince Vaughn makes his best private pile face as credits roll. <laughs> that is so a private pile face. And I'm so glad you called that out because we're recording this you know, before October when we're releasing it. I have already recorded the Full Metal Jacket episode with Kurt when we're doing the Stanley Kubrick retrospective. And the whole time I'm watching Vincent D'Onofrio, I'm going, man, Vince Vaughn totally ripped you off in 1998 for that because wow. And they're both ripping off Jack Nicholson from The Shining. Yeah, you're, you're definitely right there, Jay. Because in this, in the original, and I don't want to do this back and forth too much, but like in the original, all all that happens is you just get a big smile from Anthony Perkins, and then that little skull overlay, and it's done. And this is uh, something else. But we'll we'll get into it. So much to talk about there in a movie that again is so well known, but I don't know. I feel like I'm trying to talk about the cover band version of a you know classic album or something. It's like if the three of us went and locked ourselves in the studio and tried to redo Dark Side of the Moon, you know? <laughs> the thing is, is, you know, what I thought of as I was watching this a lot was, and I've mentioned this on, on Dana's show before, that I'm not quite as opposed to remakes as a lot of people because I'm a big theater fan. Hmm. And in theater, you have all sorts of, you know, re, you know, you have revivals and you have like community theaters and touring yeah. programs. And they do basically what Van Zandt does here. The problem is, is this is really comes across like a high school and not that kick-ass high school that did the alien, you know, yeah. play uh, a couple of months ago, but like my high school doing psycho, <laughs> it just doesn't have the kind of fill of professionalism that you'd expect from somebody trying to remake a, a classic like this. If I hadn't told both of you that this movie cost $60 million, could you show me where that $60 million is on this screen? I could not. <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, it, because it, it doesn't, I mean, everything is done kind of weirdly out of time. So like the clothing and the fashion is a bit strange. It looks like it's very, thr I know it wasn't, but it looks like it was all bought at like a thrift store. Like it does not look like, especially in 1998, Yeah, uh, it does not look like a $60 million movie. I mean, we're talking, 
you know, I think The Rock was made for like $65 million. These two things, yeah. one of these things is not like the other. Yeah, and if you see that, you can see the $65 million on the screen. And we should say The Rock has probably, what, four times the cast, like of known actors in it than this is. So the Van Zandt got paid a lot of money for this. The actors made a little bit, but it, it's so weird. I'm glad you called the fashion part of this out because – that was the thing watching the 1961 growing up. I never like wondered what color are they wearing, you know, because I just didn't think about it because you're kind of engrossed in the story and Janet Lee's giving a performance and everybody in it's kind of neat, right? And in this one, like the bright orange colors and the, the sort of gosh colors that Anne Hess chooses for Marion seem so different. And I was alive in 1998. Nobody dressed like that, especially a 29 year old. Well, so this is actually an interesting story that I got while researching this. The costume designer, who is an incredible Academy Award winning costume designer, she's phenomenal. So this is not in any way a slight on her. She believed they were doing a period piece. They were doing a true remake. And so somehow she was never told during pre-production that this was supposed to take place in 1998. Oh, wow. Which just is mind blowing <laughs> to me. And, I mean, that just if there's anything that tells you what you need to know about this movie, that story is it. Right. Like yeah. how wrong headed this whole experiment was it just really brings that to light. To that point, Julianne Moore, when she shows up in the movie later, looks like a 20 something, 30 young, 30 something from the late 1990s. She's got on the bright Walkman headphones. She dresses like women from that era dress. She looks like, you know, people I knew. Viggo Mortensen kind of does, I guess, if you were really into early hipster or something like that. But everybody else here, I mean, Vince Vaughn's dressed the same way as Anthony Perkins, except he's just a foot taller. You know, <laughs> that's the problem. <laughs> You've called him giant. We should say Vince Vaughn is 6'5 in real life. Everybody else in this movie is 5'10 and below. And it is evident every time you get them on screen together. Julianne Moore looks like she's in the 90s. So she either she figured that out or the costume person figured that out on the way. The fact that they can't figure out the key character of this thing, who's the inciting incident and in all of it, Marion, is not in the right time period is one problem. Vigo Mortensen looks like he was an early adopter of the alt-country Americana scene. He, he's like the seventh member or the sixth member of Whiskey Town in this, house, <laughs> yes. this movie. There you go, yes. <laughs> yeah, right down to the uh, what looks like pomade in his hair to he, make him slightly greasy. Yeah, he's doing the same accent he did in one of those Texas Chainsaw movies he was in, by the way, too. It's the same bad faux Western accent. Maybe that's how people talk in... Bakersfield or wherever this is supposed oh, to be. Oh, this set. is supposed to be in Arizona. Mike, you live in Arizona. Does anybody look and talk like this? Uh, no, this is the thing that cracks me up about this is it's like, okay, we'll take wherever the Bates Motel is, is one thing, but like Anne H., Vigo Mortensen, they live in fucking Phoenix. That's where the story starts is Phoenix, Arizona. Like, one of the biggest cities in the United, like nobody, I mean, I'm sure there's probably people that dress like that, but it, no, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it yeah. was not even remotely, if this had been 
they were coming from small town Texas or something like that, I would get it. But like they live in Phoenix. No, uh, sorry, not not how people dress. Anne Hesh is giving a performance like she's trying to do a remake of the Sybil Shepherd role in the last picture show. And that is what Ooh. is so weird for me to watch her in this, because what she does is she said, I am not going to copy Janet Lee. And Gus Van Zant says, cool, don't do that. And so she goes and gives this, I, I don't know what you call it, half coked out weird performance is, is all I can call it. Like she's got these little ticks and she's just doing, she's almost doing the Missy character from I Know What You Did Last Summer, except with better clothes. I mean, it's really weird. And she seems really bug-eyed. Like, she's yeah. always, like, popping her eyes out. Yeah, that's the cocaine part I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's like, even worse than, like, normal cocaine. <laughs> cocaine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's bad cocaine. <laughs> yeah, it's like she got into the meth. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Thank you. Since we're talking about mid middle of nowhere towns. <laughs> That's how the Bates Motel has stayed open all these years. Vince Vaughn turned it into a meth dealery. And this is a prequel for True Detective Season 2. I don't have the hatred of Anne Heche that a lot of people do. I think she's been good in plenty of things. You know, she was right around the same time. She was in Return to Paradise. She's really good in that. I enjoy her in Volcano, even though that movie is... Well, I, I think people who've listened to Dana Buckler, I'm going to... Say it for the film strip listeners. One of the things I do is defend garbage movies. And so Volcano is one of those movies. But Mike, why do you think we brought you on for this show? <laughs> <laughs> the thing she does in this is the way I don't know if it's her call or Van Zant's call, but the way she plays this character, not only is she bug eyed and twitchy, but the thing and the thing that made Janet Lee's performance so memorable is she really seemed like under normal circumstances, nice law abiding person who saw a crime of opportunity and took it and then almost immediately kind of regretted it. You know, we mm -hmm. get scenes of her smiling. as She's driving and getting away and stuff. But Anne H, the way she plays it, she plays it. Almost like this was deliberate and planned and she had no remorse. So when we get to the scene where she's talking about, you know, she's got a private trap or whatever it was and, and she needs to go back and get out of it. It doesn't sell. You don't buy it because there's nothing about her performance that has indicated any conflict whatsoever about the decisions and the choices she made. And that's the kind of thing when you're trying to remake something like this that just radically alters the entire movie, right? Because if we're not sympathetic to Marion, yeah. the rest of the movie doesn't work. It falls apart completely. And I don't think she's very sympathetic the way she plays the character. Mike, you, you've leaned into something there that I think is so important to talk about when trying to diagnose this movie and why it fails. And look, I, I don't hate it, but I will tell you that I don't think it entirely works either. And it's all in the way the performances are done and what the intention of the characters is. In the original Psycho, it's crimes of passion and crimes of opportunity. That's really could be the, the name of the movie is crimes of passion because that's what they all are. This movie is crimes of intent. Like at no time do I think Anne Hesh is a nice person. Do I think her Marion mm -hmm. Crane is a good person? She goes back into the office and she's so snooty to Rita Wilson. Who is given the same lines that the other woman in the other movie was, but Janet Lee just kind of was like, mm -hmm, okay, you know, and Anne Hesh is just looking at her like she's so annoyed with her, you know, and everything she does, she's 
there's a sinister level to her. And even everything that Vince Vaughn does as Norman is there's so much sinister to it that it removes any of the innocence or the uh, spontaneity that maybe drove the other movie. And it makes us not like anybody here when you don't have anyone you can get on their side of, because who hasn't made a bad choice here and there and then lived to regret it when you can't get behind that, then you're rooting actively for this character to die. The only person I found slightly likable, and this is a weird thing, was William H. Macy as Arborgast. Yeah. Everyone else was kind of like a scumbag. I mean, Sam seems like he's making an excuse not to have a real relationship with Marion. Marion seems like the worst person at her office. I guess Rance Howard is okay, but Rita, the Rita Wilson character can be really annoying. She seems like one of those people who would always have something to say. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very much like I said in the introduction, it's like all the ambiguity or the playing it close to the vest or the subtext has just been completely discarded. And she seems to be wearing and Hayes especially seems to be wearing every everything she's feeling right on her face at all times. And see, that's where I think is the mistake. And I'm going to lay that at Van Zant because he is saying to these people, we are not creating something new. We are remaking this. We're trying to be painstakingly true to this, but I want you to bring your own thing to it. So he's giving them mixed messages and he is not directing them because if he was in control of this, he would look at her and the performance she's giving and go, you need to not be so obvious that you want to steal money. From this place. Because I look at Anne Hesh and I'm like, this is definitely not the first time she has stolen something from this office. No, no, definitely not. Yeah, I agree. And and I I, I actually don't mind. I think Macy's fine, but I think he and Martin uh, Balsam are kind of a wash. I actually kind of like the way Mortensen plays it. I, Ron, I agree with you. He kind of seems like he's coming up with reasons not to be in this relationship with Marion. But I kind of think that because... Uh, I think it's is John Galvin. Is that the name of the guy? Yeah, yeah John Gavin. Yeah, he's a sentient block of wood in the original. <laughs> and, and Vigo actually brings a little bit of depth. You know, Sam just kind of seems like he's almost like the perfect film noir patsy. Right. Even though this isn't a film noir, he's a schlubby guy who's a bit in over his head, but he does you know, kind of care about this situation. So I like Vigo. I like what Vigo does. I think the big misfires are Vaughn and H and, and Jay, you kind of mentioned it, you know, what makes Anthony Perkins so brilliant is a, he's just such a, a, a charming, likable, attractive guy. And so you like Norman when you first meet him, right? And then slowly, but surely that, that creepiness that there's something off about this guy. But even then you're kind of almost hoping even now rewatching it. I'm like, I hope this time I watch it. Norman makes better choices. Cause I think Norman right. could be a good person, man. Vaughn just looks like a creep from minute one. Like <laughs> yeah. there is no point where you like him or are sympathetic to him in this movie. They went from the boy next door is this horrible murderer and psychologically damaged individual to the creep next door is actually as creepy as you think he is. And maybe a little more because Vince Vaughn is creepy because again, he's so tall and he can't help his size. It is what he is, but the way he carries himself, he's kind of lurching around like, master, can I get that for you or something? It's very weird what he is doing. And you know, especially Anthony Perkins is so innocent with the way he plays that. And I know I get Vince Vaughn's problem. I can't be Anthony Perkins. One, I don't have that kind of talent. Two, I'm not going to you know redo that because then all I'll get criticized on is, is I just copied the guy. So I'm going to try 
try to do something. But again, I, I need Van Zant, who can command actors and has done a great job in other films with it. I needed him to tell Vince Vaughn, no, this is wrong. You need to do something else with it. Because these two performances are so bad that it is enough to kick you out of the movie early on. Because that's the thing about Psycho that even, you know, nowadays people will say, man, the first half of that movie is amazing. And you just kind of put up with what happens in the second half. But the first half of this movie is truly awful. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for all we're harping on Vince Vaughn, Vince Vaughn's sheer size. Tony Perkins was six one, yeah. So so let's not so let's not you know forget the fact that Anthony Perkins was also very tall, especially for being an actor and especially at that that time in Hollywood. But it's the way that it, it's it's so much in how Vince Vaughn handles himself physically, rather than can, just being tall. Can I give he, you can I give you a thing real quick? Sure. What if you reverse Viggo Mortensen and Vince Vaughn in this movie, and you had Viggo playing, you know, Norman and and Vince Vaughn playing Sam? Wouldn't that have just worked so much better? One hundred percent, that's a better movie. There's no question because it, Ron, you hit the nail on the head. Perkins was tall, but he played. I can't think of a better way to say it than this. He played Norman small, mm-hmm. right? The way he he his posture and Meek. everything. Yeah, he just seemed lonely. You know, when he's like, hey, would you like to come and have dinner with me? Uh, It's nothing fancy. He just seems like a dude that's lonely. And oh, my God, a human being. And yeah, it's gravy that she happens to be a pretty woman. But like a human being that's not mother that I can interact with. Uh, I almost think it would have been better if they were going to have Vaughn to stare into his comedy roots and have him be kind of this big doofy Norman, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh gosh, I'd love it if you just came, you know, but they don't do that. They go just this sort of intense and he's the way he's always looking at Anne H. I mean, minute one, you're just like, you know, if I'm Anne H, I know I've got to like sleep somewhere, but fuck it. I'm out. I'm sleeping on the side of the road. The minute I see this dude, I'm not staying at this hotel. Yeah. Whereas with Anthony Perkins, yeah. you're like, okay, yeah, he's nice. I, I'll be safe here. Yeah, I, you're right. And look, it's not like she's above that either. We it, Just like in the original movie, the Marion character sleeps on the side of the road. Can I give props to James Remar for being a human photocopy machine, by the way? Because he gives the exact <laughs> performance of that other guy whose name I don't know. He gives an exact copy performance just in color from the original movie. That That's a feat. Yeah, that was really impressive. <laughs> Yeah, he was great. Well, and and some of the secondary characters, because I thought James LeGros actually pretty good as the the car dealer, too, you know. Mm -hmm. So in the fringes, there's some good stuff going on in this movie. But what do you do when the two foundations of your movie, the two things that 100 percent have to work, just misfire completely? Well, let me let me tell you why I like this movie if I like it at all. All right. It's not because it's well done. I'll tell you right now, it's not. But I'm also a fan of garbage cinema. But I'm really a fan of garbage cinema that thinks it's not what it is, and people don't get it. And then you just watch the train wreck unravel in front of you. Like, I am always down for hubris gone awry on on the screen. And I mean, I've seen it so many times. Ishtar and you know this and even more recent things like Cloud Atlas and stuff like that. I'm just, I love it when you get all this 
you know, firepower, star power together, and it completely and totally just blows up. Like, I think that's amazing to see on the screen. And what I'm watching is the train wreck. I, I will fully admit to be that guy watching the train wreck happen. And I don't know that there's a better scene to emphasize all of this than the pivotal scene where Marion and Norman are supposed to be having dinner together out of the rain, and they have this whole conversation back and forth about their background, his mother, other stories, private traps, and all that. And the thing you got in that original movie was obviously Norman was super attracted to this woman, right? And you could see it. Anthony Perkins was really just blown away by Janet Lee, and they connected on some level. They had chemistry. Anne Hesh and Vince Vaughn have as much negative chemistry as you could possibly <laughs> shove on the screen at one time. It is unbelievable. No, you you definitely have a point there. There's there's a lot that's missing in that in that relationship between the two of them. There's no at no point does does Vince Vaughn really seem like like watching the original Psycho. Sometimes you see Norman. It's like oh, he's just a, a sweet kind of a sweet shy guy. And Vince Vaughn leers at her like she's a steak dinner throughout the entire conversation. You know, I was reading a couple of interviews with Van Zandt on this. And one of the things he said is why they kind of played it a little different is because he felt like everybody knew the plot of Psycho. So he didn't feel like it was necessary to hide the plot twists. But it's like, yeah, but the tension comes from hiding those plot twists, man. <laughs> Otherwise now we're just, we're just watching you jump through hoops with actors who are less talented than the ones who did it before. Like I, I it's this movie is so wrong headed in its conception yeah. that I just can't even wrap my brain around it. You, you know what? Everybody knows the, Fleetwood Mac song landslide too. It didn't stop the Dixie chicks from doing a killer version of it when they redid it you know, several years later. Right. <laughs> like they, they gave it something or better yet. There was this time in the nineties when the Eagles absolutely weren't talking to each other and all these country stars, Travis Tritt and Clint Black and all these people got together and did a tribute album totally as a way to try to goad these guys back into <laughs> your working together. And it worked. But if you listen to Travis Tritt do take it easy, it's not the Eagles song, but it sounds a lot like it and he brought a little heart to it so it's fine if you you think everybody knows the thing you still got to have something for an audience to catch on to otherwise you're just like me and you're enjoying how bad it is you know i appreciate the ballsiness though i mean name another director that that would have the guts to try and like you said jay the hubris to try and do something like this i mean this is uh a well, staggering amount of hubris. And so you kind of have to just God love Gus Van Zandt for even trying it. Right. It's not so much a remake, but you got to tip the hat, or at least I do to Ryan Johnson and what he did with star Wars. I mean, that was not what everyone expected and maybe even wanted, but that movie made a billion dollars and people are always going to talk about it. Like for whatever yeah. reason. And he did it his way. Like he, and absolutely will back up every choice made in it. So but I don't feel like Gus Van Zandt did enough differently that ended up being a positive step. He did things differently, but it always seemed to work out for the worst, starting, of course, with our two, the two most important characters in the flick. 
Well, yeah, and let's talk about the big scene, the shower scene, right? Like the most famous thing from Psycho next to the score probably is that shower scene. And the choices he makes in it, it's not the same recreation of the shower scene. I mean, you get some of the same shots, but you've got these inner shots of like goats, you know, looking at you and storms rolling by. And there's the inner cut of mother's face, but she looks like a demon from trick or treat or something. I don't know what's (laughs) going on. Well, and that's actually what I noticed when I watched them both in sync is, you know, this is called a uh, it's often called a shot by shot remake. And it 100 percent is not. It is actually a scene by scene remake. Yes. And they more or less use the same script. But every shot is different. And almost every shot is a worse shot than what was in the original. Um, there, there are almost no shots that sync up identically. Uh, almost every the timing is different. The blocking is different. You know, uh, one in the 1960, it will be shot from the right side of the frame, whereas in the 98, it'll be shot from the left side. And I saw an interview with Van Zandt where he was saying it, it proves that you can't completely recreate art, that that if you're trying to do that, somebody, you know, a little bit of who you are is going to come through. And I think part of that is that Christopher Doyle was the cinematographer. And if people don't know who Christopher Doyle is, he's one of the best cinematographers in the business. But OK, if that's the case, then let Christopher Doyle do Christopher Doyle and don't force him to try and recreate these shots, but then just make him different. Because by the time I got done watching him, I was just getting annoyed with the differences. It's like, why are you even doing these things differently now? I don't, I don't even get it. So the shower scene is a perfect example because everything's paced differently. The cuts aren't identical. And there's those random things of goats and, you know, and you get that in Arbor death death scene too. There's a couple of, There's that woman on the bench that's like half dressed and got a mask on for some reason. Yeah, like right out of a Nine Inch Nails video or something that he (laughs) just puts in there. You know what that kind of stuff is, man? Rob Zombie did that same exact thing in Halloween 2, and it's just (laughs) as weird and just as off-putting. It makes no sense at all, but it's horror movie music video. Which I get from Zombie, but why this? And why only in these couple of scenes? You know, at least Zombie commits to that, right? Like House of a Thousand corpses he does that but that's all throughout the entire movie this is just like those couple of scenes where he does that it's like i don't even know what you're trying to say by doing that it it feels like an attempt to be artistic for the sake of being artistic but a little but i think people tend to forget when they're talking about the original psycho is it was shot by a television crew it wasn't shot by a movie crew so the things that are quick and dirty in the original psycho or quick and dirty for a reason. And I don't, and I, and this just feels like almost like, have you ever watched a bad student film? Oh yes. Many times. It, it feels kind of like segments from a bad student film where they try to take something mundane and turn it into something artistic, except you're, you're fiddling with the most famous, one of the, one of the most famous scenes in movie history. And I can understand like the need to do things differently or the, the fact that you can't do an exact recreation of a movie. But I watched The Disaster Artist, and I watched the side-by-side segments that they did with the recreations of The Disaster Artist versus the actual scenes that took place in the room. 
And even where, where they're different, they feel in terms of tone, in terms of spirit almost, they feel like they're coming from the same movie. And you're not getting that with this. It feels like certain things are being pulled from an entirely different film. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the disaster artist, Ron. And, and one of the things I first thought of on this one is I don't know if how many people will have seen it. But in 1962, Sidney Lumet made a, a movie called Failsafe. And then in 2000, uh, George Clooney did uh, basically yeah. almost a shot for shot remake of it using the same script and everything. And it worked like gangbusters. Yep. It was mm-hmm. great. Um, and so this can this experiment can be done and it can be done successfully. It's just this one isn't that, you know, uh, because Clooney was smart enough to know. I need to make sure we need to make sure that we get out of the way of this script. This script is where the winner is, right? We've got the good dialogue and everything. So we need to just get out of the way and just do it and hope that a whole new generation sees this movie. And, And I thought it was perfect. I don't, Van Zant couldn't get out of his own way in this one. Um, he, he just, he had to make it a Gus Van Zant movie even though he was just supposedly remaking Psycho. Yeah, but see, that's the thing, is if I didn't know Gus Van Zandt had made this and that the lore around it was, I couldn't have told you he directed it. Could have been any of the nameless guys that redid the Texas Chainsaw movies, for all I know, because there's nothing about this that feels like a Gus Van Zandt movie. You know, I mean, and we're talking about a guy that has made at Bones directing movies where there's a lot of dialogue that people have to pull off between each other, a lot of drama in it, and there's none of that here. The the strength of the original Psycho was not in the script, unlike Failsafe, which I will agree with. The strength was in the way it got executed. And that's what's missing here. We've got all the same stuff. We've got all the same ingredients. But doggone it, I can't remake Rachel Ray's you know great dish anymore. But I've got her ingredients. Why can't I? Because I don't know what I'm doing, and she does. I can't believe I just complimented Rachel Ray, but I did. There we go. <laughs> so. <laughs> so let's let's talk about Lila though because I do want to talk about Julianne Moore because she also gives a very different performance than what Vera Miles did and the stories about how unhappy Vera Miles was on the set of Psycho are legendary at this point but she still gives a really good performance in that movie for what she's supposed to do Lila here has a much more agency as a character she's not taking anything from anybody and we didn't talk about it in the plot summary but I mean she's the one that knocks Norman out with like a swift soccer kick to the head she's a very different energy as the Lila character this time around, though she's still driving the same thing. I want to find my sister. I know somehow you can help me. So why don't you just get in my way and help me? To me, she ends up feeling like the most the most modern character of of the remake, especially. She she's the one, like you said, in terms of her wardrobe, she's the one who felt the most 1998. And her actions seem to be the most like modern woman actions. And in the original it feels like it's more driven by Sam. And in this one, it feels more driven by like Lila and Sam's just kind of along for the ride. It's or a little, it's a little totally bit of both. Face. It's a little bit of both in that original, but she definitely is one that is not going to take no for an answer from him. And we still get that from Julianne Moore here, but she pushes him. But the, the huge block of wood that John Gavin was, you're right, does kind of instigate things and do things because in 1960s, that's what the man did. Yeah. And I, so I love. Julianne Moore in almost everything. I actually, for me, I don't think she completely works here, but I don't think it's her fault because you guys are right. She's a much more driven, much more, you know, assertive character than Vera Miles was. 
But the problem is because we're using the same script, she still makes decisions that I think become much more inconsistent with her character, like the way she's searching through the house where she's very like she's doing it with trepidation and, and, and which is completely inconsistent with the way she's played the character. Right. Like right. you, you expect her to just start kicking doors in and being like, where's my sister? I'm going to start, you know, stabbing people if they don't give me my sister. <laughs> but the way she behaves doesn't really comport with that because we're using the same script. So I feel like she's giving a good performance, but she's in a different movie than the one that they're filming. And, and yeah. so it's the that's kind of the problem I have with the with the Julianne Moore role with Lila in this is I don't think it's a fault of Julianne Moore, but I think that's again one of those ways that they maybe should have updated it and gone off script and done some things maybe a little differently because they could have crafted a character that fit more with that performance. Well, you know, you've got a character in, in 1960 who is legitimately worried about her family member because she knows how unhappy Marion has been. She's afraid something's you know bad happened to her. She's not going to take no for an answer. And she plays that like a woman of the 1950s and 60s, early 1960s would. And she, everything she does. And Julianne Moore comes in this movie like a woman right out of, you know, I don't know, uh, the Sarah McLaughlin Festival or something like that. Yeah. And she's ready to cut you as much as look at you. And Julianne Moore has said, I played this character to be someone who doesn't like men. Who, you know, is, is definitely not interested in romance. I'm there for my family member. She's very ballsy. She's very straightforward. But then, like you said, she has to do the demure 1960s housewife routine at the end of this movie. And it just doesn't fit. It would have been much better again if she did kind of rustle stuff up. And if she broke something for her to just kind of shrug and go like, well, the price of doing business, you know, or something like that. Because Julianne Moore is a great performer. I agree with you, Mike. I don't know that I've seen her in stuff where I didn't like her, even if the movie wasn't good. She always gives a good performance and is really good at tapping into her emotions. And it feels like she just sort of shuts them off in the last 10 minutes of the movie. Yeah, it, it, it's it's again, it's that third act that kind of just doesn't it doesn't fit. It doesn't comport, you know. Even sort of that fight scene and stuff, the way it's done is, again, it's not shot for shot because in the original, Mother comes in and Sam just comes in and grabs him and the wig comes off. And it's like when the, as soon as the wig comes off, Norman just more or less collapses. Like right. the, the mask is off. He's just he's done. And, and in this one, like there's like a fight, but it's a really poorly shot like blocked and, and choreographed fight. But I like the the emotional resonance of once that mask is torn off Norman, he just reverts to a child, right? He just collapses and falls apart and more or less starts crying and just becomes a child. But then like you also couple that with she turns mother's desiccated corpse around and she screams just like Vera Miles. What about this character up to this point has indicated that seeing that would cause her to just scream like that as opposed to be like, what the fuck is going on in this house? Right. Like <laughs> exactly. there's nothing about that that says I'm going to shriek like I'm from 1960. So again, it's just that weird thing where she's playing it one way, but the movie she's in is totally different. It would have been so much better if when that happens and you get that big bright reveal on the Rick Baker puppet or whatever, that she just turns around with that WTF look on her face and like grabs something because she feels like somebody's coming after it. Then here comes Norman and let her like knock him out with a pipe or something and then 
Sam run in and be like, well, it looks like you got it under control. You know, because that's yeah. sort of how it's done yeah. anyway. Yeah, I mean, Sam's worthless in this in this one. He's worthless in this fight, right? And yeah. so, like, change it just enough again to give that character an arc, to give that character agency, and and let her actually do it. Because that's the character you've built with Lila. L- Lila has the agency in this movie. Or better yet, if, if we're going to rewrite all of this, and now I'm just going to go ahead and make Vince Vaughn say I'm and Viggo Mortensen is Norman, she turns around and is looking for what is going on in here, and then a hand comes out of the shadows and taps her on the shoulder, and it's Viggo Mortensen is Norman, and they have the fight. Like, that would have worked so much better, I think. Well, it, it, it comes down to uh, a lot of it, I think, is by having... Norman continue to fight after he's lost mother's wig takes away the whole point of the fact that mother is really the dominant personality in Norman's head and in Norman's life. Right. And it kind of takes some of the teeth out of the whole of the whole explanation that we get later on in the movie from Robert Forster uh, about, you know, domineering mother and all that stuff. It's like, no, we've seen Norman like fighting to get out. I don't think mother would have, you know, cranked one out at the peephole. Yeah. I don't, <laughs> and, and I don't think mother would have fought, you know, like a ferocious maniac after losing, you know, the, the fact that, that the uh, Norman slash mother got into that big knockdown drag out with the two of them belies the whole thing at the end of the movie where mother's like, I'll be so gentle. I won't even hurt this fly. Right. Well, you, you mentioned something in the plot summary. I wanted to bring it up here. You know, Norman or, or Vince Vaughn knocks out Viggo Mortensen with a golf club. And you said mother does it, not Norman. And I had never thought of it that way, that mother was the one that, took over and did that. But now that you say that for the way the character is supposed to be written, that makes so much more sense. Like, but I, I had never picked up on that idea before. And I don't even, I don't really know that they stick with that, but it definitely seems like at least at that point, mother is the one who's taking over because mother has always been the one who had to take care of little Norman. Yeah, the problem is, I, I think you're right, Ron. The way they kind of play it in this one, it almost sort of feels like Mother's not actually real, right? That mm-hmm. Norman is actually the one doing all of this stuff. And Mother's just, you know, it's almost kind of like primal fear or something like that. Like, yeah. it, you know, mm-hmm. Norman's created Mother as an excuse for him to do these things that he already wants to do. Whereas it's very clear, I think, in the 60s one uh, – the way Anthony Perkins plays it is, yeah, he's he's lost to mother at the end of that movie. You know, he doesn't want to be this person. He is lost to mother. And and, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about even earlier with their their with Marion and Norman's conversation about private traps and Norman saying, you know, uh, a boy's best friend is his mother and stuff like that. It's like the way Perkins plays it, you feel like. He knows this is wrong. He he doesn't want to be this person, but he's so beholden to mother. Whereas what I get from Vince Vaughn is just like, no, nope, yep, I'm I'm happy to crank it out through a peephole and I'm happy to hit people with golf clubs and I'll kill whoever and then I'll just blame it on mother. Right. I, that's right. almost mm-hmm. at least that's how I read it. And I, no. again, I think that's a big miscalculation on the on the part of Van Zandt. No, Mike, and you bring up primal fear and that and now I've just recast the movie again. Why can't I have Edward Norton play Norman here? Oh, my goodness. 
Yeah, he'd be perfect as Norman. He'd do a great job as Norman. Might have been he almost would, two on the nose, but I think it would have totally worked in 1998. Who who I wanted for Norman, although he might he was a, a little young even in 1998, was Tobey Maguire. Oh yeah, that would totally work. Well, I mean, the truth of the matter is they did remake this the right way. They did it on television, and Freddie Highmore's freaking genius as Norman Bates. If y'all haven't seen that. I oh, mean, he's great, yeah. Yeah, that that show was, I mean, up until the very end, which I could talk about it on another day, I, it was brilliant all the way. Vera Farmiga and him are awesome in that, but yeah. So they they did, with you know, Toby Maguire's much more along the Freddie Highmore range. That's a good call, Ron. Again, it just comes down a lot to uh, how, uh, it comes down a lot especially to the body language. If you were going to have uh, Vince Vaughn play Jason Voorhees, that works great. <laughs> He walks in that way that big people walk when they're trying to look smaller. They're like, I think you called it hunched. Yeah, very hunched over. Yeah. But it just makes them look more threatening because it looks like they're trying to hide something. Well, he is hiding. And that's the whole point. And because he's telegraphing that, it undercuts all the tension in it. Um, completely. When you talk about people that are giving bad body language performances. I feel sad for Robert Forrester and the dialogue he delivers here because it's almost word for word what's in the first one. But the way that first guy lays all that out and look, it's some bad psychology as the counselor in the room, I will say, but it's totally compelling to hear him tell how all this fractured in Norman's mind and all this. Robert Forrester feels like he is reading this literally off a card and wondering, what am I having for lunch today? <laughs> yeah. The only thing that works better with Robert Forrester is they did cut out quite a bit of stuff about yeah. uh, sort of the, the, the in, just blatantly like transphobic stuff from the original one. They cut out Van Zant was at least smart enough to, to cut out a lot of that. But you are right. I mean, Robert Forrester's there's no there's no emotion. There's no passion. There's no. You know, it was straight up. I just made Jackie Brown, and so I got a little bit of cachet here, and I'm going to get paid, you know, a half a million dollars to show up on set for a day, and then I'm going to go to Fiji for, you know, six months or whatever. Right. Like, it's just not, yeah. It, it well, and, I mean, even when the movie came out in 1960, uh, it was criticized for that ending, that exposition dump at the end of the movie. And that's never been anybody's favorite part of psycho and it certainly wasn't improved in the new one by any means no it felt like the end of a television episode you know ron you brought up it was shot by a television crew it felt like the end of a television episode with they're all sitting around the office and everybody's smoking and he's laying out all this you know psychology on people and in 1960 that's all they knew so they're right to cut that some of that stuff out for the 1998 version you're absolutely right but it, that character delivered that in a way that you bought it and you kind of went along with it here. It's like, did they hand him the pamphlet like two minutes before he walked out of the makeup chair with this? Cause like, he has no, no emotion, no feeling that other guy is like passionately defending somebody or something. It's almost like he's trying to be Gregory Peck and to kill a mockingbird and tell people about Norman Bates's broken mind at the end of that movie. Um, and if he's trying to deliver it in a more clinical way, it's not, successful because he's not going clinical enough with it he either right. needs to go either needs to have some emotion to it or he needs to be like 200 percent cold just right yeah the original is almost like professorial right mm -hmm. like he's like none of these people are going to understand what i'm talking about so i need to educate all of them whereas forrester is you know i mean 
for those who don't know and have never met me, I'm a lawyer by profession, so I'm comfortable. I've used expert witnesses and on the stand and stuff like that. You know, he's almost like an expert witness, but he's a bad one because yeah. he's just <laughs> reciting the stuff. He's not interested in actually educating people, whereas the guy in the original, he's the guy I'd put in front of a jury. You know, he's going to try and educate the jury. Forrester's just clocking his $200 an hour that he's getting paid to uh, testify. I love Robert Forrester, but this is not one of his shining moments in his career. Not not at all. And we got to talk about the end here because the ending is pretty much the same. We're dragging the car out of the swamp. But then the score starts over again, but it's not the actual score. This is where Danny Elfman decided I want to be weird and play a jazz guitar improvisation of the psycho theme. And I literally sitting next to my wife on the couch this time said, I always wondered what the psycho theme would sound like on a guitar. And now I don't want to know. (laughs) Yeah, it's, you know, it's just, I mean, they had a lot more credits and so they had to come up with something, but it, it doesn't work. I don't think it, you know, I love Danny Elfman, but the guy, when you're that creative, you're going to misfire. And I definitely think that reworking is a misfire. Um, and it just it was just blatantly like uh, we got to drag out the credits. Right. Because the 1961 just ends. They're pulling the car out and it cuts to black and it's over. It's just, again, it's another bad decision and a long line of bad decisions. Yeah, and give Elfman credit. He's the first person that told Gus Van Zandt, this is a really bad idea. You do realize this is a really bad idea. And Van Zandt said, yeah, but we're going to do it anyway. Well, we're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So I don't think it'll be a huge surprise, but what are yours for Psycho? Mike, we'll start with you. I want to give it a small popcorn because it's just so wrongheaded. But I, I have to admit, rewatching it this week, researching it, talking to y'all about it, I can't say that there's not value in the movie, even even just as an example of what not to do, right? What 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 hubris, like you said, Jay, and stuff like that. So I'm actually gonna give it a medium popcorn because I do think there's value in this movie existing and seeing this movie. If for no other reason than to prevent somebody else from doing something like this in the future. So I'm, I'm giving it medium. Ron? I can see exactly what Mike says about this being a great guide of what not to do. Uh, but for me, that doesn't uh, – for me, that isn't enough to pull it out of the small popcorn territory. What pulls it up to a medium popcorn for me, and I'm going to go ahead and give it a medium popcorn, is just how bad it can be at certain points that I found – Intensely entertaining in a completely inappropriate way, (laughs) especially a lot of the unneeded text that came out of the subtext of the original. Like we didn't have to hear people having sex through the wall to know that that Sam and Marion are shacked up in a no-tell motel. You know, we didn't need to hear uh, Norman cranking one out at the peephole because that was implied in the movie just based on – the way he stared through the hole and like the sweat on his forehead, uh, the the things where it, it goes wrong, it either it can be dull or it can be weirdly entertaining. And I found it weirdly entertaining enough to get it up to a medium popcorn. 
Film strip fans will know I have oft used the medium popcorn for films that I think had aspirations to do something and then fail in a spectacular way. So they don't completely bottom out and just become unwatchable. And that is, this movie is what I'm often thinking about when I'm giving something that rating. Because this movie has all the, the stuff to work. Even as crazy as an idea it is to make, remake the 1960 Psycho, this movie had the stuff to work. And they just made every bad choice they possibly could. So watching it unravel and actually watching it never really get off the ground is half the fun of this. Um, it is a complete exercise in doing something wrong because you don't want other people to do it wrong. You know, I, I knocked on Rob Zombie earlier. The only reason he made a sequel to his 2007 Halloween is because he said they don't want to see somebody else mangle my idea. And I wrote in a review once, well, thanks, Rob. You did it for us. And that's exactly what Gus Van Zandt did. He kept us from a slick Platinum Dunes remake of what basically would have been a remade Psycho 3, if any of you have ever seen that. And he gave us something that is completely wrong in every possible way, but it's still something worth seeing, even if you only watch it once. So if you've never seen it, folks, and now you know, we've given it all to you, do go watch it at least once just to give yourself the the experience of it. Don't do what Mike did and try to watch it side by side because you will drive yourself mad doing that. And I don't recommend <laughs> doing them back to back either, but just watch it sometime and go like, wow. Every bad decision that could have been made got put on the screen. And that says something in, in a world that the Hollywood machine has been around for a long time. And in the nineties, it was super strong. And the fact that people at Universal said, yeah, let's go with that. It just blows my mind because you know, the number of eyes that had to screen this to give it a sign off and the fact that it just goes bad. It's amazing to me. So yes, this is a medium popcorn all the way. Well, Mike, thanks again for joining us on this episode. Tell folks again how they can follow you on social media and how they can follow The Dana Buckler Show. Sure. And really quick, before I get into that, we mentioned it earlier. I do want to encourage people, if you're interested in this, uh, extension765.com is Steven Soderbergh's website. He has a recut of both of these where he's intermixed them. It's called Psychos. Uh, it's worth a watch because it's Soderbergh. And honestly, I think it's kind of the best way to address anything dealing with the new one. You can find me at Hibachi Justice on Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, also, check out the Dana Buckler Show anywhere you can find podcasts, Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Player FM, whatever your podcast app of choice is, you can find the Dana Buckler Show. So please check us out. Absolutely. Ron, tell folks how they can follow your writing and things on the internet. You can find me on Twitter at Hollywood Ron, and you can read my writings on denofgeek.com and denofgeek.us. I will have just finished up Preacher by then, and I will be deep into the new season of American Horror Story, speaking of slasher movies, and the newest season of The Walking Dead. So there you go. Lots of cool stuff out there. Of course, folks, you can find this show on Twitter at Filmstrip Pod. Search for Filmstrip Podcast on Facebook. Connect with us there. We'd appreciate it if you share the show and leave a positive review wherever you download it. You can always find links to all the podcast places and the past episodes at our website, filmstrippodcast.com. We appreciate the support. Mike, once again, thanks for joining us on the show. Won't be the last time. And prom I promise next time we won't bring you on for a piece of garbage. 
<laughs> well, just make sure it's fun garbage. It's got to be volcano or something along those lines. You know, you've dropped that one a couple of times, and I- I'm tempted to go back to Tommy Lee Jones fighting a volcano. So <laughs> I just I haven't watched it for a few years, so give me a good excuse to watch it. So I I would be down. We might have to do that again, but folks, thanks again for joining us on this episode. October is slam full. We're doing extra shows this month. Why? Because that's what we do on Filmstrip. Shocktober is a long time tradition here. So we wanted to pack in a little something extra for y'all. And thank you for your support as we've relaunched Filmstrip here in 2019. And we'll be back again for another review in just a week. So thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.